Chapter 4 The Battle of Alamein ended, as far as I was concerned, at about four in the afternoon of the 24th of October. I was taken, first by jeep, then by ambulance, to a very large tent that had been set up as a kind of clearing house for the wounded. We were laid out on stretchers, packed like sardines. There was hardly room for the doctors and orderlies to move between us. Someone put a dressing on my wound and fixed it with sticky tape right round my thigh. I was to regret this later. The poor devil in the stretcher next to me had some terrible internal injury and was slowly groaning his life away. Every breath must have been agony for him. Although I had been awake for the last 36 hours, I could not sleep. I was not in much pain myself, but I felt very conscious of the pain all around me. That tent was a kind of antechamber to hell, and I still dream about it. The next morning I was taken in an ambulance to another Ford dressing station. The poor man who had been next to me was in the same ambulance, and I could imagine how every jolt on the rough desert track must have been for him. By the time we arrived, he was dead. This second forward dressing station was underground, as it was still within enemy artillery range. I was greeted by a cheerful Australian orderly who said, I'm afraid this might hurt a bit. He then pulled off the adhesive tape round my thigh, and as I'm a fairly hairy man, I saw what he meant. I was then greeted by a journalist who wanted a story. I started to tell him about the battle, but found that was not the story he wanted. He wanted to know what tune the piper played during the advance. That was the scoop he was after. As it happens, I was one of the very few people who could tell him. I'd been within a few feet of the piper who played for the 20 minutes it took to march across open desert between our lines and the enemy. He never stopped playing, although we were under fire all the way, and of course the noise was such that one could only catch a few notes now and then. The man wanted a story, so I told him the piper played Scotland the Brave, and I've since read that this goes down in the history of the Battle of Alamein. The truth is he could have been playing three blind mice, for all I could really hear. From this dressing station I was taken by ambulance again, and as I was loaded into the ambulance the RAMC orderly took my boots, which were placed at the foot of my stretcher with the cheerful words, you won't be needing these again. Up until that day, I'd always thought it unkind of the army to call the Royal Army Medical Corps, rob all my comrades. At about three the following morning, we at last arrived at a real hospital in the canal zone of Egypt. At last I was able to lie down in a real bed. I fell fast asleep immediately, only to be woken up at 6.30 by a cheerful nurse saying it was time to wash my face, which she proceeded to do in spite of my protest that I wanted to go back to sleep. They wasted no time at this hospital, and I was taken into surgery. The nurse had an Irish accent, and apparently when I came to after the operation, I was rambling away about what I had been doing with a beautiful Irish nurse. As the nurse had a mask over her face, my imagination must have been in overdrive. I'm told that this is a fairly typical side effect of pentothal. The surgeon took out a piece of metal not much bigger than my thumbnail. It had passed almost completely through my thigh, and he took it out from the other side. The nurses gave me the piece of metal as a souvenir, and I kept it for some time. Later I discovered that it came from a German hand grenade, not from a mortar, as I had thought at the time. While I was in that hospital, I had the amusing experience of catching out the army in a catch-22 situation. I was ordered to shave. I can't shave because I haven't got a razor. Give me a razor and I'll shave, I replied. No, we can only give a razor to other ranks. Officers have to buy their own. 
but I haven't any money, I objected. This was true, because we had emptied our pockets before going into battle and only kept a wristwatch and a fountain pen. OK, they said. We'll get the pay officer to give you some money. And quite soon, an officer came round from the pay corps to give me some money. Show me your identity card, he said. This I couldn't do, because we had to leave our identity cards with our commanding officer before we went into the battle. The pay corps officer, quite reasonably, said he couldn't pay me without proof of identity, which I hadn't got. Game and set to me. In the end, I was given some money and had to buy a razor and shave like a good boy. But it was fun while it lasted. The ward next to ours was for officers suffering from jaundice. At that time, no one seemed to realise that hepatitis is infectious. So the jaundice patients wandered in and out of our ward quite freely. There were 20 officers in the wounded ward and six of us, including me, caught jaundice. From this hospital in Egypt, I was taken by hospital train to Jerusalem, to a very good, real, permanent hospital. While I was there, we received a radio programme to say that people at home had heard of the great victory of Alamein and the church bells all over England were rung for the first time since the war had started. Tears of emotions came to my eyes when I heard English church bells ringing. England seemed such a long way away. My wound in the leg had really done me very little damage, but I was very sick with jaundice, a most depressing illness. I have one or two memories of hospital. One was when a nurse gave me a bath, and she said with some horror, when did you last have a bath? I told her that I couldn't remember exactly, but it was about five months ago. Another memory was of the time when I was due to be discharged from the Jerusalem hospital, and the surgeon colonel in charge of the hospital told me that as I had suffered from jaundice, I mustn't touch alcohol for at least 12 months. I said it was a pity he hadn't told me earlier, as on the previous night I'd gone with a friend to the King David Hotel for dinner and had drunk a bottle of wine. I also pointed out that whilst I'd been in his hospital, I'd been given a glass of whiskey every evening. Apparently he didn't know this, and it must have come as a bit of a shock. I didn't tell him that I simply hadn't been able to drink the whisky because the smell of it made me feel sick. From Jerusalem, I was sent to a convalescent depot somewhere in Palestine. It was like a holiday camp, and I was able to do a little riding as they had some horses. It was near the sea, but it was winter by then, and too cold to bathe, at least for me. Eventually, I was pronounced fit enough to return to light duties and was sent to the Royal Engineer Depot at Ismailia on the Suez Canal, which was a sort of holding camp where everyone was sent when they first arrived from England. The commanding officer of this depot was Colonel Cloutman, a VC and MC from the 1914-18 war. He had been a KC, that is to say a senior barrister before the war, and was to become a judge after the war was over. Cloutman gave me a job as instructor at the depot, first in mines and explosives, and later in all the other aspects of engineer work. I soon found out that the best way to learn anything is to have to teach it. I kept myself one day ahead of the class by reading up my next lesson the evening before. It was often a quite close-run thing. I particularly enjoyed all forms of rope work, and this later came in handy when, after the war, I took to sailing. Among other officers and men passing through were officers from Palestine. At that time, the State of Israel didn't exist and I found them very interested in all aspects of explosives. They were my star pupils, and I probably trained some of the Israeli terrorists who were such a danger to the British peacekeepers after the war.
To come back to Colonel Cloutman, after he'd made me a part of his staff, I always dined at high table with him and the other senior officers. He was a man of great wit and charm, presiding rather like a genial host over a mess that often had as many as 80 officers. One of Cloutman's bright ideas was to get hold of some horses. He found out that the Scots Greys had left their horses in Palestine when they became mechanised, and these horses were eating their heads off without anything to do. The colonel managed to have three of these horses sent to Ismailia by rail, together with their Arab groom, to look after them. One of these remounts was a magnificent chestnut mare, and the colonel naturally picked her for himself. This mare proved to be a vicious and quite uncontrollable beast. Even the Arab groom was afraid to go into the box with her. The very first time the colonel rode her, she threw him off. And when the adjutant had the privilege of riding her, he had no better luck than the colonel, and the beast was passed to Muggsy, meaning me. I decided that before I would attempt to ride the animal, we must become friends. And so I spent several hours talking to her in a loose box. At first... She put her ears back, showed the whites of her eyes, and started biting the door of her box and making it clear that she wanted to kill anyone who came near her. Eventually, I managed to calm her down enough for her to allow me into her box and put my hand on her neck. After a time, she had completely calmed down and even let me kiss her on the nose. The next morning, I took her out for a ride. The American Air Force had started making a landing strip in the desert, a long strip of flat sand, and I took my mare, she had the ridiculous name of Merry Legs, onto the landing strip and let her gallop the full length. It was a wonderful experience for both of us, and after that she was happy again. I think she'd been cooped up without exercise for so long that she'd become mad with frustration. I was allowed to keep this wonderful Merry Legs as my personal mount, and we had a lot of fun together. Ismailia was a very pleasant place to be stationed. As well as having a horse to ride, we could go sailing on Lake Timsa. The RE had several of its own sailing boats, and of course we could swim in the lake and in the canal. Another rather naughty and unethical sport was fishing for red mullet with a small piece of explosive. The explosive stunned the fish and we could pick them out of the water. You had to be careful that your balls were not in the water when the explosion went off. I never had this experience, but I knew someone who did, and he was never quite the same afterwards. <laughs>